when we started talking about doing this series, we knew that we were going to be really deliberate and very slow in how we unpacked things. So we were excited this morning because we see lots of new faces, or at least faces we haven't seen for a while. So if uh, you haven't listened the first two weeks, we would encourage you to go listen to those, because um, today might make uh, some sense, but not it might not put all the pieces together for you. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about is this idea, the first two weeks really this idea about understanding how does God's authority work out through scripture, and then last week we talked about how do we orient ourselves towards that authority, uh, how do we live into that. Um, and as we kind of expected, um, a lot of the questions have been how do we apply this and think, how do we get some uh, illustrations for how to think about this. So we thought we'll do a sermon entirely in illustrations today. So we even have props, um, we have some handcrafted pictures, it's going to be a real treat, I think. Um, <laughs> volunteer. <laughs> Volunteers? We have magic tricks later on, it is amazing. <laughs> this talk has everything. Um, so uh, I want to sort of start though with this illustration, because one of the questions that we, we um, get or we think about when we think about the Bible is, is really this question of like, well, how do I read this thing? Um, in some ways, I want to always give the snarky answer, like, with your eyes. Um, because the answer to the question, of some, if we change the question, we we're going to say something like, how do, you, how do you do a triathlon? Well, you swim, jog, and run. But that's not really the answer, right? The answer is, how do you orient yourself to that task? What are the things that go into preparing for how you're going to do it? That's really where all the work comes in. And so in some ways, when we think about the scripture, the question of how do you read the scripture is really a question of how do you orient yourself to this process? How do you think about it? And so that's what we sort of want to end with today. Um, and one of the things that we want to sort of really hit on is this idea of humility and how do you approach the scripture with an open hand? Um, and there's all these references in the scripture that the Lord gives and he takes away. In some ways, we think that's a great way to think about our... Um, our reading of the word is that we're going to get ideas some of our ideas are going to change but it's how do we orient ourselves towards that process um, the other thing we would think about is oftentimes uh, it's how we start this process how do we begin to approach the scripture that's going to sort of be the thing that defines how we're going to move around inside of it and how we're going to think about it differently John Lubbock says it this way. He says, what we see depends mainly on what we look for. And so today we want to sort of unpack that idea of what does it mean to take seriously where you start from and then where you can go when you think about the scripture. As John just said, what we see depends mainly on what we look for. If you have a bulletin with you, I would love for you to grab that bulletin, pull it out. Uh, if you didn't get one, hopefully there's a few extras. Can I borrow yours for a second, Chad? On the very front of the bulletin, you will notice a picture. That picture is also on the screen up there. And uh, obviously, this is a picture of what? Somebody shouted out. A duck. Yes. Obviously, obviously, it's a picture of a duck. Wait. What? Obviously, it's a picture of a rabbit. That's what I said, right? It's obviously the picture of a duck, but it's also obviously the picture of a rabbit. It's a bit of an illusion. The interesting thing about this is that it is both. So here's a couple questions. One, what animal did you see first? How many of you saw a rabbit first? 
Okay, how many of you saw a duck first? Wow. Good. <laughs> how many of you saw this, both of them simultaneously? Liars. No. Um, <laughs> what you may have done is toggled back and forth between both. You may have gone back and forth between both images. Uh, but really what we often see in life and when it comes to the scriptures is we see things from our perspective. Maybe it's been our upbringing that gave us that perspective. Maybe it was uh, some part of our training educationally. Maybe some of you just have an affinity for ducks and, uh, and notice that right away. Others of you grew rabbits or something and, uh, and you showed them in the 4-H fair and so you instantly see uh, a little velveteen rabbit or whatever. But the idea is that we come at things from different perspectives and sometimes it could be suggested and maybe you're teacher suggested this to you at some point in education, that to have a narrow mind is to be able to only see something from one perspective. To have an open mind is to be able to see it from multiple perspectives. So in some ways, is this a picture of a duck? Absolutely. Is this a picture of a rabbit? Absolutely. Um, Brooks Atkinson makes this statement, the most fatal illusion is a settled point of view. So I want you to do this for a moment. I want you to take either a pen or pencil or just your finger if you don't have a writing instrument, and I want you to put a mark on the picture at the point at which it enables you to see just the rabbit or primarily the rabbit. Does that make sense? So you just put a little mark there. And then I want you to put a mark at the point in the picture that enables you to primarily see the duck. Now, they're not the same point, are they? Okay. Now, some suggest it's the eye that gives you the ability to see both, but that's impossible, right? Because the eye is the eye for both animals. So there's something else on the page that you're orienting that enables you to see the other. And I think the same is true for us, that there's something on the page that might be different than the person sitting next to you. And maybe you're already checking that, like, hey, where was that point for you? Wait, that point is different for me. How does that work? But the idea is that both can be present at the same time. And we're going to refer back to this a little bit later on. Um, I want to apologize up front. All this talk of ducks, it's a lot of foul language for one Sunday. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amen. That didn't land. Um, <laughs> that's also a duck joke. Um, this reminds me, though, of a story in the scripture. It comes from uh, Matthew uh, chapter 8. And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away in that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, 
they begged him to leave their region. A pretty uplifting story, one of these uh, gospel stories with a lot of energy to it. Uh, and th the interesting thing about this is this is the story of a duck in some ways, right? It's a passage uh, describing something in a particular way. Uh, but for those of you that are astute students of the word, you recognize that this story has happened a couple times, right? So we know that it happened in Matthew 8, which is what John just read. But we also know that it happened again or that it was described again by another gospel writer in the book of Mark. And then it was again described in another way by another writer named Luke. And this is the particular account of Luke. I'm going to show you on the screen, but I'm just going to talk you through parts of it. Um, and this particular rendering is one that has a few more details, a little bit more information is given, uh, a little bit more of the particulars. And so um, it says that they sailed again. They landed the opposite side of Galilee, that they uh, walked out onto land. Everything's the same in the story. Jesus is confronted with a man. That man was a man that was demon-possessed. Uh, but what's interesting is he defines or describes the man as having been without clothes for a very long time. And so it goes on to say that he lived among the tombs, that Jesus went toward him, and that the man began to cry out and to yell at Jesus. There was a bit of an exchange verbally, and that uh, at some point in the history of this man, they were trying to bind him. They, uh, they locked him up. They put him in the tombs, but he kept breaking the tombs. He was uncontrollable, uncontainable. Um, and then it says that Jesus said to him, what is your name? And the man, full of demons, said, my name is Legion. And um, then he's basically, they have this little barter. Uh, you're gonna, I know you're going to toss the demons out of this man, but we don't want to just go to the abyss. Can you send us somewhere else? The demons then convince Jesus or Jesus allows them to go into the pigs, however you want to understand that. They go into the pigs. The pigs rush or charge down the hill uh, and into the ocean or to the lake, and uh, they drowned. And everybody that's seen it is, like, shocked. And then the next scene, it's like, boom, you cut to the next scene in the movie, and you have a man sitting there clothed this time. It's very obvious that his whole demeanor has changed. He's clothed, and he's in his right mind, and he has an interaction with Jesus in that place, and he's sitting at his feet, learning from him, and this is that same story. And so we have a lot of things going on here. We have demon-possessed men, or man. Uh, we have a, people without clothes, and then clothes. We have this problem with pigs. We have a demon named Legion, maybe describing that he has multiple demons within him. Uh, you have Jesus calling or drawing out the demons from the particular man. We have pigs drowning. We have people scared. We have people telling Jesus to go away. We don't want you around here anymore. And so there's a lot of moving parts. But in all of these things, it's just scratching the surface of what really is going on. There are many deeper layers to what's taking place. Because we have all these questions uh, about this story. Uh, why is this man described as being naked and later clothed? What's going on there? Why is he in the tombs or in the graveyards? Um, why are there a bunch of pigs in a story told to Jewish people? 
Why is there a demon called Legion? You also have questions like, why, why send them into the pigs? And why did the pigs run down the hill and drowned? And why were the pigs charging toward the water? Why were the people angry or scared? Why did they want Jesus to leave? Uh, why were there 2,000 pigs? The Gospel of Mark makes it really clear. There were 2,000, and then the other passages, it's not mentioned, just that there was a large number, all kinds of questions. And what do we do about the fact that the two places mentioned in the Gospels are different places? One is Gadarenus and one is Gerasenus. What if I told you that uh, there was an area of land called the Decropolis, or the Ten Cities, um, and that these cities, it would be similar to saying Eastern Washington versus Spokane, that it would place slightly different emphasis on different elements, but it would be recognizing and re talking about the same kind of area. What if I told you that uh, in this area, uh, there was a group of Roman soldiers, a legion, really, around 2,000. What if I said that the pigs that were being raised in these communities were in fact viewed as unclean by the people that lived there, but the city was primarily filled with Gentiles, and everybody had to sort of work at the behest of this large group of soldiers that was there. So all of the resources went towards this group of people. And what if I told you that this group of people basically terrorized this region, that they did what they wanted how they wanted to? that they took what they wanted, that they gave nothing back, and that people lived in fear constantly of what this legion of Roman soldiers would do. What if I said that the image for this group uh, in this region was actually that, a legion of pigs? What if I told you that the word band of pigs that's used in the gospel is the same word that's used to describe a group of cadets, military people? What if I said that the word rushed into the lake is the same word that's used to describe when a group of uh, men go into battle and they rush into fight? What if we said that uh, all of these things seem to be pointing out that this story is about more than just demon-possessed men or a demon-possessed man, but something about a world that is bent all of the wrong ways towards violence and towards war and towards all the things that are opposed to the kingdom of God. Now, I know that some of you right now are going, well, time out, time out. Um, I, I don't know that I'm hearing you correctly. I feel like what you're starting to say is that this wasn't an actual event that happened, but maybe is alluding to something more going on. Uh, perhaps that's why multiple regions are mentioned. Perhaps that's why multiple individuals are mentioned. Some say two men came out of the tombs. Some say one. Uh, maybe it's the description of the man and the pigs and the demons, like there's something else going on. But um, for most of us, we would probably suggest that what we heard is that this actually happened, that there was a literal moment in time with a literal Jesus who rushed into an area, healed a literal man, and then tossed literal demons into literal pigs who then went and drowned. And it sounds like, John, that maybe that's not what you're saying. It sounds like what you're saying is that it could have happened exactly like that. It could be incredibly literal, but you also could be saying that this story is more than just an event, that maybe something else deeper is going on. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's exactly what happened. And it's also about more than just the details and the facts in the scripture. It's about something bigger than this. This story isn't about what happened. It's about what always happens, right? It's a story about what always happens, that God is always bigger than Rome, that God is always more powerful than the worst things that can come after us, that God is always there to create a different kind of kingdom. It's exactly about these events because these events are always happening. So, that doesn't necessarily give us a great deal of comfort because for many of us, we've been taught to think about the scriptures as a kind of collection of historical facts, a kind of log of details that are incredibly important. And so we still want to sort of force this question onto it, did this occur? And the question becomes something like this, well, did this actually happen? Always. Absolutely. But that reminds me of a quote. The quote says this, to be clear, I affirm the traditional view that the Bible is infallible. If we trust the Bible to do what God inspired it to do, and if we're interpreting it correctly, it will not fail us. But the all-important question is, what did God inspire the Bible to infallibly accomplish? If you expect the Bible to conform to contemporary standards of scientific, historical, literary, or logical perfection, I'm afraid you're going to be greatly disappointed. God did not inspire the Bible to meet these standards. As we've seen, God inspired all Scripture to point us to Jesus and more specifically to the cross that culminates everything Jesus was about. If we faithfully trust that God is the crucified Christ, reveals him to be, Scripture will unfailingly keep bringing us back to him. A couple weeks ago, uh, Kevin talked about this idea of the church as a paradox, and so I think this is a good place for us to sort of give another illustration of how this idea works. The word paradox has two pieces. One is para, one is doxa. Para means uh, like or side by side, uh, and doxa means uh, idea or opinion. Um, and so one of the ways to think about a paradox is to actually think about a parabola, which has some of those same words. And that word actually means side by side or two things that are thrown. And the idea was you throw something up and it goes up to a point and then it comes back down, and those things are very similar. Um, and so in some ways, we can think of the idea of uh, this parabola, right, being a paradox. And so when we think about paradox in that way, uh, we can think about sort of a center, uh, central to our faith is this paradox that Paul talks about in Philippians. Um, this idea that God and Jesus are distinct and yet similar. And so central to our faith as Christians to our beliefs about the way the world works is, is centered on this idea that at the, at the center, at the very core of everything we believe is this incredibly complex idea that God is both before and after us and also has come incarnate in the flesh in the form of Jesus. And so if we think about that as sort of the two points of this parabola, right, in the sort of space that's created above us. And so we can think about it that way. On one side you have Yahweh and on the other side you have Jesus. Um, and then there is this space that is formed under those two things. So if you imagine the space under Yahweh and Jesus, this is where we sort of exist. 
And what's fascinating about this is actually kind of the ways, if you think about the descriptions of the world in the Old Testament in Genesis, this is actually similar to the ways in which the Hebrews understood the world, is that God was in the heavenly realm and created this space underneath which we lived, which was called earth, and that the temple represented this place where the, the holy of holies, right, that heaven came to earth in this one specific location. And so our job as people was to live in this space uh, between the beginning and the end that was called earth. And in, those, uh, in, in, in earth there were these moments, these places in the temple and the holy of holies where we could experience heaven and earth coming together in a single place, right? And we would have this powerful experience. And so if you go to the next slide, I mean, I think also we want to pause here uh, and talk a little bit about um, this, the incredible nature of these drawings. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, some people play music and do worship, some people are artists, right. I mean. <laughs> so, uh, th this idea that we live in the earth and that there's these places where God comes in, and then we see in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, where two or more of you are, so am I, and what Jesus is doing is he's redefining for the disciples, this notion that the holy of holies is not the thing that you have to be worried about. I am here with you wherever you gather, right? So that the spirit empowers our steps wherever we are. And so our job is that we live in this space between forever and the end, uh, between Yahweh and Jesus, and the spirit empowers our steps. And our job is to live in those areas with each other, trying to figure out what does it mean to meet God through the study of scripture with each other, how does that help us, um, how, do we, how are we to understand that process or to think about it? Um, I think that's, I think it's Gio. Yeah. It's me? No? It's Gio. Okay, great. So um, if you go back to that slide for a moment, uh, oftentimes we find ourselves in this place where we are with one another, we're learning together, the spirit is present, we uh, are hearing the same thing, and then we start to hear maybe something that's different than the person next to us. And then we go, oh no, that doesn't feel like that's the right thing that should be happening because if uh, we're in this space where God is kind of over us and the Spirit is present, then it's logical we're all going to come to the exact same belief, understanding of everything. Always the same. And so what happens is people tend to ask this question, well, then am I reading the Bible right? Am I really reading it right? Who's reading it wrong? Somebody must be. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm reading it right, and you and I have a different opinion, so therefore one of us is probably reading it wrong. Which, when we do that, let me go back to these cool drawings. When we go back to this, what ends up happening is we start go to that next one. We start putting ourselves over the Word. So if you believe that the Word of God is kind of this arch between Yahweh and Jesus and that the Holy Spirit sits in this space, we've talked about the idea of mystery, we talked about authority, we talked about relationship, that if the authority of the Word is over us, that we sit in the middle of this relational mystery and we find ourselves in there, what happens is we often don't want to be in the place where we might not know, or we might have questions, or we might feel uncomfortable. And so what we do is we go, I want to be right and figure out how to be right. So what I'll do is I'll pull myself out.
we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.